We have heard from God's word through the songs and the reading. Let us now go to God in prayer. God, as that great song so boldly proclaims, we have more than what we deserve in Christ Jesus. Every promise, everything that we have in Christ is more than what we deserve. And it's more than what we deserve because of how utterly in sin and in death and in ruin we were. But God, in His great grace, You have made us alive in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace we are saved through faith. And now we are not able to boast. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to proclaim in ourselves for this great salvation that You've given to us. So, Father, all praise, all glory, all power, all dominion belong to You. God, thank You for saving us and giving us more than what we deserve. Father, we praise you because you've given us more grace than what we deserve. Even the very breath in our lungs is a gift of grace that you've offered to us. Mm -hmm. So, Father, we pray that in your kindness, you would continue to help us know and understand and to cherish and to taste that grace day by day. Father, you've given us peace. God, where there was strife between us, you've given us friendship. And Father, because of that friendship, we now can call you Father. God, we now also know that we can come to you boldly as we hide behind Christ to ask for mercy in our time of need. So Father, we do that this morning. We come to you asking that you would continue to give us more than what we deserve, especially by the way of unity. Father, we are so thankful that you have granted this church such unity God, we are thankful that we all agree on the gospel. We agree that you are a holy and creating God and your pinnacle of creation was creating us. But God, we rebelled, we sinned against you and we deserve your just wrath and condemnation against us because of that. We deserve death. But God, in your great grace, you would not leave us that way. You would send yourself in the person of Jesus Christ to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that we deserved. And now Jesus is alive. He was resurrected out of the grave three days later, declaring that the sin that had kept us away from you, that had kept us dead to you, can now be defeated as we fix our eyes in faith and repentance toward you. So, Father, we are thankful that we agree on that gospel truth. Father, we are thankful that for anybody that gives their lives over to you in faith and repentance, you will fill them, you will indwell them with yourself, with the Holy Spirit, so that we might be able to grow in love and in mercy and grace and peace, and especially with peace in one another. So, Father, we recognize that the peace that you have given us is because we agree on this gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to continue to give us unity. God, we recognize that any unity that we have is not from ourselves. It is a gift of yourself. So, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go forth in this church, that you would continue to give us peace about things that matter, about how we are to live out our Christian lives day to day. And, Father, where things don't matter, I pray that we would set them at the foot of the cross and that we would behold you, And God, as we all fix our eyes to you, that we would run this race together for the sake of your name. God, preserve our unity for the sake of the gospel. God, we pray just in your mercy that you would keep any division out of this church. God, we ask by the power of Jesus Christ that if there are any divisions here, that they would be resolved in Jesus Christ. But God, we pray that there would be a bond of brotherhood and friendship and love here that is unbelievably from you and that the world recognize that we are your disciples because of the way that we love each other in truthful and confessional unity in the gospel. God, from time to time, we pray for different churches and different ministries here in this area. And at times, Father, we pray for different entities across the U.S. And this morning, we want to pray for one of our ministry partners at South Canyon Baptist Church. Father, this morning we want to pray for Teaching Truth International, one of our global outreach partners. 
Father, we are so thankful for their partnership in the gospel. God, we thank you for their leaders. We thank you for Rick and Ben Cornish. We thank you for Jones Nadizi. And we thank you especially for our dear brother, Jamin. Father, we pray for this team at Teaching Truth International and ask, God, that in your kindness, that their work would go forth in power and in truth, that there would be more qualified church leaders, there would be more qualified church pastors and men proclaiming the truth of your word to people who have not yet heard it because of this ministry. God, we are so thankful that in a small way, we can be a part of the work that they're doing in 17 different countries, in 19 cities, and 35 different people groups. God, we have a small part to play in the over 1,300 church leaders that are being trained for the sake of your name. So God, we pray that you would continue to bear fruit in that ministry, that you would use the team there at Teaching Truth International in Louisville, Kentucky, for the sake of gospel expansion, that where people have not heard your name, perhaps maybe even in the language that they maybe don't even have a Bible, we ask that you would use this ministry for the sake of that purpose. And God, we especially pray that you would be with Jamin and his wife, Kristen, as they support and do the work of that ministry. God, we are so, so thankful that one of us has felt that call and felt that burden and not just felt that call, but has been obedient to that call. So God, we pray that we would not prop up Jamin for Jamin's sake, but that we would prop up you for working in Jamin's life. Mm -hmm. And God, we pray that in your kindness, you might help us by your mercy, continue to raise up others like Jamin in this church so that your name may go forth to a people that have not heard of you. Guys, we turn now back to ourselves. We ask that you would help us to receive the bread of your word this morning with hearts that are ready for it. God, we confess that we've come in here with all sorts of burdens, struggles, and sins and are distracted. So God, would you quiet our hearts now, even in this moment, so that we might receive the food of your word. God, we pray for Jamin this morning. We pray for him that he would know that he is preaching to a congregation that absolutely loves him. And God, that he would know that not only do we love him, but we desire to hear from you through him. So God, give him power, give him strength to preach your word with authority and with accuracy. God, help him to show us Christ this morning. And Father, we pray, lastly, that if there would be anybody in this building this morning that does not know who you are as Lord and Savior, that through the preaching and the proclamation of your word, that you might bring a dead soul back to life through faith in Jesus Christ by using frail instruments like us. God, do that for the sake of your name this morning and for your glory. And we pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't tell you what a joy it is for Kristen and I to be here with you today. Um, even though I get to preach and teach all over the world, uh, usually it is in the open air and involves a lot more cows and chickens and different languages, I think this is still my favorite pulpit because I just have so many good memories and every time we come I wish that we had more time because I see so many faces of people that we love and care about and have made a big difference in our lives. And so it's a, an absolute joy to be here with you and a joy to bring the word to you. I spent a lot of, a lot of years in those chairs receiving the word and being formed and transformed and so it's just a, a delight to come and get to give back a little bit in that regard. Um, for those of you who don't know me, myself and my wife, Kristen, we're full-time missionaries with Teaching Truth International, as has already been well explained. We travel to persecuted and hard-to-reach areas to try to reach and train indigenous pastors so that they can train their own people and reach the nations around them with the gospel. So the goal is creating, you know, we tend to think of missionaries here going over there. Our goal is to create missionaries there going into their own tribes and nations and, and making, the gospel, uh, making the gospel reproduce in the nations. And so I thought I'd indulge this morning before we dive in just a little update on what we've been doing for the last few months before we last saw you. Uh, this first, uh, first off, I want to give you guys a little update on ourselves. In the last year, uh, TTI 
graciously and also unwisely decided to make me vice president. We were floored, we were humbled, but we're super thankful. Our founder, uh, Rick, who you heard prayed about there, has decided he is now 72 years of age. He's not stepping out of ministry, but sort of stepping aside to focus on writing and, and helping lead, and they've asked me to step into the role as vice president. And uh, we're uniquely honored. It's, it's cool to see what God has done in TTI, and Krista and I are so encouraged by the direction of TTI. Uh, there's lots of great missions agencies out there, and we're proud to partner with lots of them. But TTI's special focus on reaching pastors in unreached people groups in rural areas, in places where the gospel is threatened, is just really close to our heart. So it's cool for us to be putting down roots with TTI long-term and seeing what God can do with that. This first slide here that, you're, that you saw there is the, the, for the last few months, obviously during COVID, travel has been really hard. And the interesting thing is, even as COVID is settling down, uh, nations, it, I mean, I'm sure you've realized, it's caused so much unrest in the world that COVID restrictions have been more difficult for us to navigate our travels with actual uh, than actual spurts of COVID, especially in the third world. So over the last few years, we've been doing a lot of digital training with lots of pastors on the field, which has created a really unique opportunity to raise up more. We were already doing this, but to raise up more indigenous leaders in these countries. So we've built a, a little studio. You can see it there. We've all become live streamers in the last few years, and we've been live streaming uh, Christian education into, into nations that are closed off because of COVID or closed off because of the political closures over the last few years. And so it's been exciting to see what God could do with that. For example, in the last year, we've started partnering with more uh, seminary students in the States who have come over from their nations but aren't able to go back, and they're translating our curriculum. So now TTI curriculum is going into the language of Tuku, which is an unreached language in South Central Africa. Uh, but in, thankfully, in the last few months, on this next slide you'll see, in the last few months, we have been able, this is, a, this is one of our study groups overseas. Since we're not able to get there, pastors will gather in study groups after we give them video training. And on this next slide, you'll see we have been able in the last few months, as COVID is sort of subsiding, to get into these countries. So we've been to Tanzania twice in the last few months, training pastors. We have about 300 pastors who come to Tanzania, spread from 18, or excuse me, 11 African countries, all gathering together. You can see at this last training, we had not yet finished our building, so you put up a tent. This is just kind of the, the challenges that we face, but... Over 170 pastors came, and you can see here in this next photo that, that we just threw up, 170 pastors receiving a Bible, some of them for the first time. Can you imagine being a pastor for years and not having your own Bible? So some of these guys are hooping and hollering and very excited because they're getting their first Bible. And right after this photo was taken, we sent them out to do evangelism in the community of Imbalizi, even though Imbalizi was reached by the gospel 210 years ago, there are still unreached tribes in this area. And so during our two-week conference, we sent them out on the evangelism day to target those tribes with their new Bibles and evangelism curriculum. So it's just cool to see what God's been doing. And in the next few weeks, we'll, uh, we'll continue to travel. I'm headed to Sierra Leone in about two weeks where some of our students there will be completing their five-year certificate in biblical studies. After that, Central America, Lord willing, to Southeast Asia later in the summer, where we'll, Lord willing, do two things. We've got a new pastor's partnership in the South Asian islands, and then also we're trying to start an offshore training center for a closed East, uh, East Asian nation where no gospel witness can get in due to political persecution. So all that to say... Thank you so much for your support. We are so thankful for the prayers, for the emails we get, for the gracious gifts that South Canyon gives. We literally could not be on the field without South Canyon as Ascending Church. And so you are part of this. You are part of this work. You make it possible. There are goers and senders, and we would not be able to go without you. So all of that report is just to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, as we dive into our sermon text this morning, Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As Rachel already did a great job of setting us up this morning, looking at this epistle that Paul sends to the Ephesian church, kind of a general description after he has planted the church and left of what it means to be a Christian. We'll dive in this morning to look at 
who are we? Who am I as a person? As you turn there, on Saturday, March 12th, a rather odd and strange hashtag started trending on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, a hashtag is sort of a link that, that people will add to their speeches whenever they want to join a conversation. So this live conversation started to trend so much so, so unexpected, that Twitter actually started to restrict it because they weren't sure what it was about. And the hashtag was D-Trans Awareness Day. It was picked up by a diverse group of people who had had similar stories and started to realize that others shared a story similar to theirs. The story was always something along these lines. At some point in their life, usually in middle school or high school, they'd gone through a season of crisis. Maybe it was being bullied or losing a friend or family member, not fitting in on a sports team or a hobby. And in the midst of that pressure, they had felt a sense of loss of identity. And losing that identity, they were told to look inside themselves and question whether or not they felt like they were their own gender, and ultimately sought to transition to a different gender. Now, we all know stories like this. This is big in the news right now. But the fascinating thing about D-Trans Awareness Day was that for the hundreds tweeting on March 12th, they found out that those feelings didn't last. Now, these were not born-again Christians or political conservatives, these were people who had actually transitioned and now were, filling their, were sharing their stories filled with regret and pain about surgeries, changed bodies, lost relationships, all because of their transition. And I don't share this story to take some kind of victory lap or laugh at them or berate them, but actually to point out that this is a very real expression of a common problem and fear in our culture. Loss of identity is a normal part of human experience. We, we name it by different names, midlife crisis, empty nesting, various shapes of postpartum struggles. When life changes, our identity can feel like it's built on shifting sands. And, and losing identity can provoke huge life questions, seasons of depression and pain. And yet we all experience something like this. When we experience something like this, the world almost always tells us to look inside ourselves. And what stories like D-Trans Awareness Day tells us is that what we find inside ourselves isn't truly reliable. We change. We shift. And so if we're to find that solution for a lost identity, it can't be in us. I say all that to say because this morning, Paul is going to give us a profoundly different answer. Now, bear with me because at first, Paul's answer is going to seem dismissive when we want an answer to exactly what we are like. This answer is going to seem to be across the bow, but when we embrace it, it is life-giving, life-transforming, and soul-empowering. Who are you, really? Read with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul starts out his letter with a normal greeting. Usually, the, the greeting is the part we sort of gloss over in reading the Bible, but Paul starts out with his first volley. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. He gives them an identity right out of the gate and an identity that to them would have been surprising. Now, to our profoundly secularized world, the idea of being a saint is probably not even desirable, right? You probably think if we say saints, you maybe think of shriveled up old nuns who have nothing to do with their day other than pray. To most of us, we, if you say, what do you aspire to be? You probably don't aspire to be a saint, but that's tragic because we've sort of lost what Paul is actually getting here. To be a saint is to be a chosen one, one who is set apart and selected for the highest kind of service. Saint here is the Greek hagio. It's the same idea used of the temple instruments, right? When they were building the temple to God, they had to build special instruments of precious metals and certain stones that would only ever be used to serve the temple. You don't... You don't 
use temple instruments for common household food. They're too precious. That's what the idea of saint is here, something that's set apart, something that's set aside for precious work. This word is a word of highest commendation, especially to the people like the Ephesians, who even as we read in our scripture reading this morning, they came out of pagan backgrounds. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If you've read through Acts, there's that riot that happens. And temple worship in ancient Greece was not a pretty affair. Pagan rituals were to our minds in modern times disgusting and dirtying, and these people would have been coming out of what Paul calls debased practices, and yet now he says that they are saints, that they are precious, treasured, and holy. I enjoy in my free time listening to business and leadership podcasts sometimes, and recently I was listening to a podcast by two guys who are high-powered sales consultants. And young business people, up-and-comers in the, 501s, or in, the, in the Fortune 500 companies of the world, will pay these guys thousands of dollars to just spend one day with them to get coached on how to influence people for their business. So it was a fascinating, it was a fascinating little podcast to th- figure out what they thought the core of influencing business people was. And these two guys said that the key to all of their coaching is the fact that everyone in the world wants three things. Everyone in the world. This is what they said that they've observed. They're not Christians. They have no basis in biblical Christianity. But it's fascinating what they thought after their studies of hundreds of thousands of salespeople. They said everyone wants these three things. You know what they are? Attention, approval, and affection. Attention, approval, and affection. And they argued that everything else that we say we want is really just a gateway to get to our real human needs of attention, approval, and affection. So wealth, accomplishment, rank, power, all of those are just opening the door for the fact that we want others to pay attention to us, to care about us, to approve of us, and and to love us, to care for us. I think that these guys have hit on something true. They've sort of brushed up against the truths of the gospel that God has woven into all of human society. We are all seeking to be approved. We are all seeking to be cared about and for. And when Paul says that the Ephesians are saints, that category covers all of that. When he talks about the Ephesians as saints, he's referring to the fullness of what it means to be covenantally loved by God and set aside for his service. Think of 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To be saints is to be a people who have been seen by God and chosen by God and loved by God. It's not merely a declaration that you're really, really holy, but actually that you are cherished and set apart. So here, the sainthood that Paul is talking about, the kind that to us seems superficial, actually addresses our greatest human need. And right out of the gate, Paul says, faithful in Christ, this is who you are. And we could stop the entire sermon right there. That in and of itself is an amazing truth. But the the pressing question is, how do I get from here in my daily life to there? Right? If, If you are not a Christian, how do I become this? If you're just here, you're just seeking, you're wondering what Christianity is all about, and the idea of having a God who loves you who fulfills those basic human needs of attention, approval, and affection. The question is, how do, I, how do I become this? If you're a Christian, the question is often, how do I find that? In times of fear and anxiety, depression, identity crisis, how do I actually live out practically what it means to be loved and chosen by God? How do I apply that to my life? How do I live in it? If, if I grow in the security of this knowledge of what it means to be a saint, how do I actually start behaving like one? 
Not just knowing in my mind, but living these truths out. And then finally, how do I share this with others? Because this is the message a world desperately needs. This is why people are seeking identity. Because they don't have the ultimate attention, approval, and affection of a loving God who knows them and gives them that. So, all of these questions are rolled up into this basic question right at the beginning of Ephesians. The question of how. How do I live in what it means to be a saint? That is the message of Ephesians, the entire book. It's split in half with the beginning being praise to God and the second half being this practical advice. How do we live as saints and all of what that means? This morning, we just have time to look at the opening here. Let's look at it together. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He had blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him in heaven and on earth. Now, if that seems like a big, long, rambly sentence, that's because it is. Even in Greek, this is Paul literally just overflowing with his thoughts about the gospel. Now, in the ancient world, if you were a letter writer like Paul, you probably didn't write yourself. You would have a secretary who would record these things so that you could speak and then have it written down. Writing is kind of the purview of modern Western society. Ancient cultures, even the kinds of cultures that we serve with TTI, are more oral. They expect stories to be told, and so Paul would have dictated his letters, and you can feel that here. It's kind of fascinating to think. Paul is thinking about what the Ephesians are. He's planted this church. He's been persecuted for this church. He's left this church, and now he's going to reply to them, and as he thinks about who they are, this just flows out of him. He's got too much to say in the time, and yet he sums up so much of what he wants them to understand in the entire letter in this first effusive greeting. This is what I want you to see. So we begin in verse 3, where do we get this identity? Verse 3, where do we get this identity? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One of the things you'll notice is in the entire first chapter of Ephesians, God the Father is the subject of almost every action. He is the one doing this. All of this is from Him. Where do we get this identity from God the Father? Now, that immediately is going to create a tension for us, all right? On the one hand, it can frustrate us because this absolutely excludes self-made religion. It cuts it off completely. This is a gift right out of the gate. Nothing is earned. Think of Jesus as he's meeting with the rich young ruler. Give everything away. Why? Because this is going to be something that you can't earn, that you can't buy, that you can't do. This is all from God the Father. It's not a deal we broker or a title that we earn. Salvation is not God's response to the desperate person saying, God, I'll serve you my whole life if you save me. Nor is it God the Father's response to the legalistic person saying, hey, God, I've served my whole life. You owe me. It's neither one. This is something outside of both of them, something that we're going to see is done entirely graciously before the foundation of the world, something we cannot earn. It is all blessing all gift, and that is entirely humbling. Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. He knew how to throw a stinger. This is an absolute gut punch to our pride. We want to say, God, didn't I do something? 
on my best days, haven't I earned something? And his response is, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10, Isaiah 64.6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. This truth that all of salvation is from God the Father, by Himself, without anything from us, is so insulting to our pride. We struggle with it on the front end. But on the other hand, when we can come to the end of ourselves and embrace it, it is incredibly reassuring. See, where does my salvation come from? From God the Father sealed in heavenly places. It comes from the Father in heaven. That means that my salvation is safe and secure apart from my failings. There's an old saying, don't meet your heroes, right? You've probably experienced this in life. Somebody that you thought was really great, maybe you got the chance to go work with them or for them or meet them, and all of a sudden you realize, don't get too close because <laughs> no one looks that good up close. I'm realizing now that the older I get, I can apply that truth to myself, Pile up enough regrets in life, and you begin to realize that if my salvation were based on me, I'd already have lost it. I'm amazed what things I have done. There's a hundred-year-old hymn by Ader Habershon that's recently been rediscovered and repopularized, and a lot of churches are singing it now. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he can hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. He must hold me fast. Because my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. The truth of that hymn is that salvation being from God is actually incredibly reassuring. I often lose faith. I often lose my hold. My love is often cold. And if there's not something outside of me that is firm and solid and not letting go, then I am lost. But the good news is, I could never keep my hold, but He can. This is from God the Father before the foundation of the world. This is secured in heaven. I don't have to keep my hold because He is my identity, my past, my present, my future is already in Him, and so I'm safe and secure. A truth that humbles us, but grounds us. Number two, how did we get this identity? How did we get this identity? The basis, the Father chooses a people for Himself. Again, we see it in verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, I realize if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been at some Bible studies, especially at a Bible study where somebody maybe has some strong opinions, the concept of predestination comes up and some of us want to shrivel up and hide in the corner, right? It immediately brings to mind philosophical debates about determinism and free will, and I don't even want to have those conversations after my third cup of coffee. Christian theologians and philosophers have rightly devoted good minds to explaining these complex issues, and we should care about them. They're, they're not merely splitting hairs. We're trying to understand what God is doing. But that's not where I'm going to go today. God's sovereign's actions are always mysterious to us because we're not God. His ways are higher than our ways, and the way He acts upon our wills is always going to be a mystery. We can and should study it, but that's not what we're going to talk about today because Paul's point here is not that. Paul's point here is that this should cause incredible rejoicing. Why? Because before there was an even a world, God chose you. Think about that. 
Before there was even a world, God chose you. That expresses incredible love. I have several adopted siblings in my family. Two of them are here this morning. They didn't know that I was going to pick on them. But I will because I can and I'm the older brother. My parents would often joke with them. I can especially remember it with my younger brother Aaron, but I'm sure the joke has been passed on to my two youngest sisters as well, that whenever the issue would come up of who's adopted and who's not, they would always say, look, we just accidentally got the other kids. We chose you. (laughs) That's fair. Aaron looks a lot better than I do. But that, that joke gets at just a little seed of the beauty of what this is saying. Before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined us. This, this should cause so much reassurance. You are not an accident. You were deliberately chosen. When you feel worthless and, direct, and directionless and rejected, you were chosen. When you feel like a failure, your worth doesn't come from you in the first place. You were chosen before you did anything. God already set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. His decision to love you was already made, and he doesn't make mistakes. This is a doctrine that should cause reassurance and hope. In the same way, predestination shouldn't be a word that stirs us up in conflict, but stirs us up with reassurance. It tells us that our blessed destination is already locked in. When the world seems completely upside down and panic is pressing in, our path forward has already been drawn up. We could say that when we're completely confused, the GPS has already been programmed. The destination is set. And what is that destination? A loving adoption. That he wanted to bring us to himself. Friends, this is the culmination of all the Old Testament promises to Israel. What did he say to Israel? that he would bring them to a promised land where he would be their God and they would be his people because he had loved them and chosen them. What is predestination except to tell us that God has already promised that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will live with him in the promised land with a family and a heritage and a home. And if you are in Christ, that is what God has promised to you before the foundation of the world Predestination is not a combat word. It is a promise that God has locked in for you a good end if you are in Christ Jesus. It is a hope that we are secure no matter what happens. And these are crazy times. But we need promises like that. You know, the last few years have have brought so much unsettledness to the world where we aren't sure what life is going to look like. We aren't sure if there will be wars or not. We aren't sure what the U.S. dollar is going to do and and whether or not our retirement funds are going to suffice. And yet, in the midst of all of that, when there's so much that we're not sure of, predestination is a promise from God that He knows the end. Not only does He know it, but He has programmed it. He has shown us where we're going to go and how He's going to get us there, that we are destined for a safe haven and home. Then we look at the means. How does God do this? The means is the Son uniting us with Himself. And oh, friends, this is deep theology, but it is so good when we get it. Read with me at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." Paul here says, in him we have redemption, in him being Christ, in Christ. Now, to our minds, that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? 
Why not say because of Christ? Or by the way Christ acted, we have redemption. That's how we would normally say it. But it's not just a, a mere quirk of Bibleese. Paul is being here very deliberate. Look at how often he repeats this in this passage. We are told we are in Christ, blessed in Christ in verse 3, chosen in Christ in verse 4, blessed in the beloved, that is Christ in verse 6. We'll talk about why he's called the beloved. In him we have redemption, verse 7. He purposed in Christ, verse 9, unites all things in Christ, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 9. Verse 11, we inherit in Christ and we are sealed in him, verse 13. That's eight times in just 14 verses. Paul's then going to go on and use the concept 27 times in the book of Ephesians and 164 times in all his other letters. So obviously, this basic concept is profoundly important to Paul. Theologians call it union with Christ, but that's just another fancy way of saying it. What does it actually mean? Well, to answer that, we have to ask this question. We've been discussing all these great blessings that God gives in salvation, but how do we actually get them? You see, some gifts that we get have no real relational connection whatsoever, right? If I walk into the smoothie shop this afternoon, where my family will often go when we come on Sunday mornings, we'll go down to the smoothie shop afterwards, and we go down to the smoothie shop, and I walk in and they say, congratulations, you just bought our thousandth smoothie, here's a free cookie. That is a gift that has no profound relational connection whatsoever. But other gifts come prepackaged with profound relational prerequisites and baggage. What if you get an inheritance? An inheritance is a gift that comes with a profound relational background. You're not just the thousandth customer who happened to buy a smoothie, you are a beloved child whom a parent for years has been preparing and thinking how they will provide for you when they're gone. An inheritance has profound relational ties. And every gift we get in the, in the gospel has profound relational ties. You see, I don't have God's family heritage. In fact, I was his enemy. I hated him. And yet, here, I get an inheritance. I don't deserve it. But who does? What about God's blessings, his promises of relational comfort and protection? The Old Covenant makes clear whom he gives those blessings to, those who keep his commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you reject me, I will not be your God. Well, here I am, one who has rejected God, who has not kept all his commandments. I don't deserve those blessings. Who does? In the book of Revelation, we're, we're promised crowns and thrones. This idea of being a co-regent, a co-king over God's kingdom on the new earth, I certainly have not earned that. Who has? You see, in salvation, God isn't just giving me what I don't deserve. That's very true. In salvation, God is giving me what I don't deserve, but that's not the whole story. He is giving me exactly what Jesus does deserve. Each and every blessing in our salvation was earned by Christ so that He could give it to you. So to be in Christ means that we are covenant, covenantally, that means in relationship, united to Him in such a way that what He has earned becomes mine. See, Jesus was the perfect son who earned his father's pleasure and an inheritance. And he takes us and says, here, you share it with me. Jesus was the perfect man who lived as king of the earth, who earned the right to be set on high, to rule over the nations. And he says, here, you come share in this with me. It was Jesus who did all of these things, earning these things for himself just to give them to us. Salvation is a double exchange, not merely that Christ takes away my sins, but that in being united to him, I receive what he has earned. 
And friends, if you're not a Christian, there's a reality here I want you to see. This is why Christianity is not merely agreeing with God that you've been kind of bad and hoping He will cut you some slack. I think that's what most, most of our culture thinks Christianity is, realizing you're a bad person and hoping God will cut you some slack. Christianity means devoting yourself to Christ, uniting yourself to Him, giving yourself completely over to Him as Lord and Savior, saying, nothing of mine is mine anymore so that I can have all of what you are. I will follow you completely so that when I stand before the throne, I'm not looking for God to cut me slack. I'm looking for God to look at His beloved Son and say, I will count Him for you. That's why Christian, Christianity is a complete life turnaround, a fully, fully surrendering to Christ so that nothing of ours is ours anymore and all of His is ours. To do that, we have to agree with Him about our sin. Paul calls this a ministry of redemption. That means apart from Christ, we were not redeemed. We were lost. Sin is severe enough that we had to be bought with blood in rebellion to God. But if we are united to Christ, it is not wrath poured out on the sin, but love lavished on us. If you're already a Christian, the challenge is living in this, living in the reality that Christ has become our representative in all things. And one pastor very helpfully puts it in this way. I think one of the common ways where we struggle to live with Christ as our representative is when we feel slandered. And he gave this illustration. When you've been slandered, if you've ever been through maybe a, a bad relational breakup or a business deal that went totally awry and you've been slandered, and often, even in the little things or especially in the big things, we really want to defend ourselves, right? And we sort of hold court in our minds. If I could just get all of the key players into a room and I could take the witness stand and tell them my side of the story, and in our minds we go, if I could just say this, then everybody would know. And he gave this illustration of, in Christ, when our sin comes before God, he takes the witness stand in our place. He says, you don't get to say anything. I'm going to speak for you. But then in those moments of being betrayed and wanting to defend ourselves, we want to step up to Christ on the witness stand and say, can you get out of the witness box for just one second? I just want to share one thing. I just want to say one. I just want them to know the one thing that in this situation, I was not that messed up. I had a good reason. And Christ says, no. You either get all of me or none of me. Let me stay in the witness stand. Let me stay in the witness stand for you. For us as Christians, the challenge is we want the justification of Christ, but so often when we're hurt, we want to step back into the witness stand. Jesus, step aside for just a second. I just want to tell these people this one thing. And he says, no, let me stay in the witness stand. For us, living in Christ, it means allowing him to be our representative in all things. Christ is not only our representative, but also our head. This is a concept that isn't common in modern usage. He's not only our representative, but our leader. One way to sum this up, he is in charge because he leads the charge. He's the head. Verses 7 through 10 tells us that God has set all of this forth, a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things united under Christ. The sum would be a good way for us to declare that. The sum of all things. When everything is added up, he gets to be the leader of it all. And what a good promise for now. Why are there wars and rumors of wars and conflicting news reports? It's because our rulers aren't righteous. And I'm not just saying that I think the elections went the wrong way or something. I'm saying even the best of men are, be are men at best, and even if we could get all our favorite candidates in every place, we would still be flunking. We need a righteous king. And God has revealed a righteous king whom he will sum up everything under. He will make an end to wars and rumors of wars, and he'll do so perfectly righteously. And finally, the guarantee. The Spirit seals us with himself. Verses 13 and 14. The guarantee, the Spirit seals us with himself. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In all this great salvation, God not only accomplishes it, but he seals it with himself. He doesn't merely dictate this from heaven, but he comes to us in presence and power in the person of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Your salvation was far too precious for God to delegate it to anybody else. He has come himself. It's no mistake that it is the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit who seals these things because these are spiritual blessings. In the Old Testament, God promised physical things. We think of the covenant promise in Deuteronomy chapter 28, a land called Canaan, an outward law to righteously govern people and restrict evil so that we'll be kind to our neighbors, and a tabernacle in our midst where we can worship God. But in the New Testament, the spiritual blessings are much greater. These are blessings that are secured in heaven for you. Not pie as in the sky, but unseen, deeper human spiritual realities. We have a land, we have a people in Christ's church, people who love us. We have a God who loves us and will not let us go. We don't have an outward law to govern our minds only, but a law written on our hearts as He slowly transforms us. And we have God not tabernacling in the middle of the camp, but dwelling in our inner being. The fact that these blessings are spiritual makes them far better. And in this salvation, here's the greatest gift of all. We see the fullness of who God is. Did you notice that throughout this text? I'd be remiss to overlook it. We have here the mysterious three in one, the Father choosing, the Son earning, and the Spirit sealing. Now, God as three in one, the Trinity is no easy doctrine. It's literally impossible for us to ultimately define, and that's part of the reason why we talk about it so little, because it seems so nebulous and highly technical. And yet, as Christians, anyone who has, un, who has received salvation knows God in this way. We meet Him in this way because He has allowed us to know Him in His fullness in the very way He saved us. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, these are unsettled times for us and for the lost world around us. And we are daily asked, where will you root your identity? Who are you? We're not going to find it in ourselves. We're not going to find it in groups. We're not going to find it in worldly identities, in nation states, in movements, in labels, in anything else. Those all shift and change. We can choose to try to write our own story, or we can choose to be caught up in Christ's. God has given us an identity that does not change past, present, and future. In the past, He chose us. In the present, we are united with Christ. And in the future, we are sealed for a heavenly home, a land, a family, and a future. And this is a message that we and the lost world need to hear. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you have called us to this amazing salvation. Jesus, we praise you because you have lovingly chosen to give us all that you have rightfully earned. And Spirit, we praise you because you are present with us, sealing us and preparing us for the day of redemption. Help us to know, help us to live, and help us to share this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.